Well, let's pray, church. Lord, we thank you for the, the privilege of worship and being part of community. And we thank you for the Word of God. And pray now you take the Word of God and make application to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, is there a code for being a genius? Did you know that the average IQ of an American is 100? The average IQ of a Nobel laureate or recipient is 145. And there's a project being carried on in Shenzhen, China, that's studying genetics, and they've gathered together a profile of approximately 1,600 people. They've been studying these people for years, and their average IQ is 165, which is off the scale. Uh, there's only one in every 32,000 Americans that has a 165 IQ. One in every 32,000. Unless you're at the Citadel, that's one for every 25 students there. Um, we do have another school in our state where they have to, when they play their fights on, they repeatedly spell the name of their school so that the graduates will know how to spell the name finally. But anyway, uh, IQ varies from place to place even in our state. But in this place in China, it's, uh, it's, it's led by a young man named Mr. Xiao. Let me read you a little bit about him. Uh, this Mr. Xiao is a phenomena. In addition to his genetics wizardry, he is fluent in English, and he was self-taught. His career as a geneticist began quite humbly with the cucumber. In the year 2007, he skipped school in Beijing and went to started an internship at the Chinese Academy of Agricultural Sciences. He cleaned test tubes and did other simple jobs in return. The graduate students let him borrow their genetics textbooks, which he mastered, and participate in experiments, including the sequencing of the cucumber genome. Mr. Xiao was 15 years of age then, and he published a paper that was released in the Nature Genetics 2009 edition. Now, at age 20, he's in charge of this multi-billion dollar project, uh, a phenomena. They've determined that half of genetics giftedness is inherited, and they're working on the other half. So, so I read that, and I thought, is there a code that we can break in the area of godliness? Is there a, a, a code for being men and women of God? Of course, the Scripture has it. I'm going to go to a passage this morning and suggest you a code for a standard of godliness. The book of Hebrews was written to the early church. It is a book of exhortation and warning. The writer says in chapter 13, the last chapter, verse 22, uh, this is a word of exhortation. I'm pleading with you. It's a long sermon, many people think, that was read time after time. There's also a lot of warning passages in the book of Hebrews because there's a certain element in the church that was pulling back and they were not going strong. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, I'm writing this to you so you will not become sluggish. In chapter 6, he says this in verse 12. He says, I'm writing this to you so, so that you will not be sluggish but become imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he said, instead of being sluggish, I want you to have faith and patience and diligence. 
And he said earlier in chapter 5 that there are certain people in the church that have become dull of hearing. They weren't receiving the Word. They weren't living out the Word. They weren't applying the Word to their lives. And so in chapter 5, verse 11, it says, we have much more to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And then he lobs this missile into their lap. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need for someone to once again teach you the elementary principles of the Word of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For solid food is only for the mature who, because of practice, have developed their powers of discernment to distinguish good from evil. He says, you know, you really, you should be teachers. You should be at the forefront. You should be handling the Word of God with more dexterity than you do. You should be talking about the apostolic message, but instead, you're dull of hearing. And because of that, you've come to need once again the milk of the Word and not the deeper things of God. And so he exhorts them. He says, I, I, I want you to be diligent. I don't want you to become sluggish. I want you to go forward. And, and, and see, Hebrews 10 will be our focal passage. Now, I'm going to break away from this Lord's Prayer just this Sunday. Hebrews 10 will be a focal passage that, that really gives us a, a, a pattern for godliness. Hebrews 10 gives us the foundation for godliness, and then it gives us the fruit of godliness, and then it gives us the fertilizer for godliness, the atmospherics, if you will. Well, first of all, the foundation for godliness is Christ and Him crucified. We've got to be people who understand the strong reality of Christ. If you study post-modernity, there's a term that's very popular, and it's called a meta-narrative. A meta-narrative really just means a big, all-consuming story. And the question is this, is there a big, all-consuming meta-narrative or story that will give cohesion to a tribe or a family or a group or a culture? And the postmodernist says there is no meta-narrative, that every man determines in his own mind what is right and wrong and what is his meta-narrative. Well, the Bible says without any equivocation that there is a meta-narrative to which all the prophets and the apostles speak, and that is Christ and Him crucified. That in the fullness of time, God invaded human history, was born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might have the full rights of sons. Galatians chapter 4. So, so the meta-narrative, the big all-consuming story is Christ and Him crucified crucified. And the book of Hebrews goes to great pains to say that Moses was a great prophet, but Christ is the final prophet. That the high priestly system foresignified the coming of the one high priest whose name is Jesus. That the sacrificial system foresignified, foreshadowed the one sacrifice on the cross by the Lamb of God whose name is Jesus. That, that the temple system was instituted to, to point to the ultimate reality of God among us whose name is Jesus. So behold the glory of Christ. Listen to me. If we're to grow in the Lord, we must make much of Christ. We must glory in the forgiveness of sins by the cross. We must be worshipers of the living Christ. So, so listen to this foundational statement in, in, in 
Hebrews 10, he says this. Therefore, brothers, verse 19. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. See, a new and living way, the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and here's the first of three, let us. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So let us draw near with confidence. Because Christ has paid the price on the sin. We sang in here, just saying, it's not being the greatest hymn in, in Christendom. And can it be? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. So, writer Charles Wesley may have been reading Hebrews 10. Let us draw near with full assurance, with confidence. Why? Because Christ is our King. That everything foresignified the coming of Christ. That Jesus is the meta-narrative. Listen to a couple of passages. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7 says this. The former priests of the Old Testament were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. You know, a priest would come, he would die. Come, die. Come, die. This happens. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He didn't die. He rose victorious over death. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He, he lives eternally. He prays eternally. This is this. He has no need like those high priests, verse 27, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. See, die forever. He is the ultimate high priest. And then chapter 10 says this, verse 11. Every every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, one sacrifice fulfills all the Old Testament sacrifices. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for... From that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, one, he has made perfect all those who are being sanctified. We are perfect in Christ because of the cross. And we're continually being changed. So, so if, if, I am, if, if I am to grow in the school of godliness, the foundation must be Christ. That's why Paul, Paul is so clear here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and Him crucified. 
He says to the church of Galatia that has started believing a horrific lie that, that said it's okay to believe in the cross, but you've got to do A, B, C, D, and E to be made right with God, which is the non-gospel. Paul closes this most vitriolic letter that he ever wrote by saying, but ne may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Listen, we must make much of Jesus. That's the foundation. Then the fruit of that is to hold unswervingly to our confession of faith. Uh, the, the, the fruit of seeing the beauty and glory of Christ and tasting the wonder of the forgiveness of sins by the cross is to hold unswervingly. Let, let me read the second let us in Hebrews 10. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Okay. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold it without wavering. Now, I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the confession is a stated body of belief. It's, it's a body of belief. Call it the apostolic preaching of the cross, the apostolic message, but it's something that you hold on to without wavering as you see the glory of the gospel. A couple other places this word confession is used. Hebrews 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. You see? It's a body of belief. We hold to it. Or chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. See, so, so to me, the, the fruit of knowing the reality of the gospel is that you hold to the apostolic preaching of the cross. You do it without wavering. You do it without wavering. You say, God is. He has spoken. He is glorious. He is good. I, I'm holding to the Confession is a body of truth. Okay. The, the third, and this is where I really want to get your attention. The third, let us, is the fertilizer. It's the foundation, Christ, fruit, holding the confession. And now the fertilizer is in verse 24 and 25. Again, let us. The third, let us. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting meeting together as some are beginning to do, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, so, so, this is, this, I, I want you to leave here understanding that it's vitally important to be in relationship with other people who will consider how to stir you up to love and good works. Okay, consider how to spur you or stir you on to love and good works. Now, the word for consider means to think about. It, it means to ponder, to, to think through. So, so to me, if I'm going to ponder how to build up a brother or sister to love and good works, it presupposes relationships. You know, it... it, it Consider, don't, don't neglect to quit meeting together. The Lord's Day is vitally important. 
Don't neglect to meet together with brothers and sisters so that you consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We've got to have relationships. In this church, we have what we call community groups, men's groups, women's groups, groups that meet together for the expressed purpose of pondering how to stir up one another to love and good works. And listen, without that, you will not grow as a believer as you should. You can come to worship every week. You can read your Bible. You can be a person of prayer. All those are incredibly important. But a missing element will be you need to have people in your life who consider with you how to stir up one another to love and good works. Uh, I, was, I was thinking about this. I, I just, well, here, here's the. When you came to faith in Christ, if you're a believer, you trusted in Christ at some point in your life. And when you, re- when you trusted in Christ, you received the Holy Spirit. Okay. No one can say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. So you receive the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. From that point forward, every day, either I do that which will heighten the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, or diminishes the power of the Spirit in my life. So either I feed the things of God, or I quench the Spirit, I grieve the Holy Spirit. I limit the Holy Spirit. And, and I'm, what I'm trying to say is that, is that relationship that are, that are God-centered and Christ-centered, where you people ponder how to stir up each other to love and good works, is God's is a primary means by which God inflames the Spirit in your life. And if you're not doing that, you're missing out on a key element of spiritual growth. So our community groups, for example, the purpose statement is community groups exist for the purpose of applying the Word of God and building relationships that intentionally encourage, see, the passionate pursuit of Christ and the advancement of His kingdom. It's our purpose statement. It's the church with some words added. See, it's, once again, applying the Word, building relationships that intentionally, see, consider how to stir up on the love and good works, the passion and pursuit of Christ and the advancement of the kingdom in our lives, in our community, and around the world. I was thinking, I've been reading through the book of Proverbs, thinking, pondering the book of Proverbs, and I just think, there are two types of people in the book of Proverbs, the wise and the unwise. And out of the gate, in chapter 1, verse 7, the writer of Hebrews, or excuse me, Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So, so two types of people, there are those who, who, who understand that, that, that the reverence of, the worship of, the exaltation of God, the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, and those who go, yeah, I don't really need that. And the Bible calls them fools. They despise wisdom and knowledge. And then in, in Proverbs 2, the writer describes a person who understands that this concept of the glorious God who has revealed himself. And he says this, he says, if you, hear this, this is just strong. If you call out for insight and, and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek for it as if it were silver and search for it like it is hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. And find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, 
and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. And I thought, I want to be that kind of man, and I want people around me that live that way. It's just not this insouciant, phlegmatic, well, whatever you want. It's somebody who says, no, I'm, I'm going to search for the wisdom that's found in Christ like a man who's searching for silver or somebody that's looking for a hidden treasure. And I'm, I'm going to look for it. And it's echoed, again, in the book of Hebrews. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For everyone who draws near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. I, I, God rewards those who go hard for Him with his presence and his power and his joy and his purpose. And I, I, won't, I want to be that person, but I, want, I need people like that in my life. People that are on fire for the things of God. There's enough dousing, bitter, complaining, half-hearted folks. I, I, want, to be, I, want, I want to find some people who, who want to burn. I want to burn with them. So I'll get together with some of you and we'll have, we'll have a meal and I'll listen to you and, and your heart for the Lord. And I'm, I come away going, wow, wow. It's just impressive to me. See, I'm a pastor. If you didn't know that, that's what I do. That's who I am. So, so I, I study the Bible. I read like crazy. I write stuff. I, I hang out with people on our staff and who really love the Lord and who are joy to my heart and I, I, I love what I do. I love this church. I really do. But I, but I look at you, and I know, let's say you go into the marketplace for 45, 55, 60 hours a week, and you're with people who really, their, their worldview is not biblical. Their worldview is, is bigger barns. There's a story told by Jesus. Let me explain it real quick. Jesus says that there's a guy who had um, a bumper crop. I mean, incredible returns. And he took all the produce, and his barns were overflowing. He says, what am I going to do with all the excess? He says, he said to himself, as he thought to himself, this is what I will do. I'll build bigger barns. And I'll store all this produce in bigger barns. And Jesus says, but God said to him, you fool, today you'll forfeit your soul. Now, the thing about the bigger barn man is he didn't say, I'm going to curse God. I'm going to belittle God. He had no concept of God. He had no God fixation, no God awareness. He, he may have been a very wonderful guy who voted conservative or voted liberal, however you want to vote, and, and, and was man of the year, was on the, he probably was on the community board that made all of our lives miserable. But, you know, he's that type of person, you know, a, a good guy. But he had no God awareness. You live with so many people that just have no concept of seeking hard for God. I mean, if you ask most people, I think, I may be wrong. If you did the first clause of the Apostles' Creed, do you believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? they say, yeah, sure, why not? It's got to be an ultimate cause, I guess, but sure, why not? But it makes no practical difference in the way they live. You need to be around people who have a burning, insatiable desire to honor God with their being. They have, they have a worldview that, a worldview is just the way you see reality. Um, it doesn't mean you agree on everything, but a worldview is a group of people who, who they, they can answer the following thing from Scripture, is there a God and how do you define him? Who made me? Origins. 
Why am I significant? Well, I'm made in the image of God, and I'm to honor Him with my body. Uh, Where did evil come from? Is there evil? Is there a standard of goodness? Why is the world so screwed up? It's called sin. Um, Is there a God that can give us salvation? Yes. How does salvation come? Through the work of Christ. Is there a future hope? Yes. You live and you breathe and you die, and after that you have an eternity. I need to be people that have a worldview that's centered around those things. Make friends with people that that are bigger barn people? Absolutely. But do you have people in your life that say, behold the beauty of Christ? See, that's that's why you need relationships. Hebrews says, don't neglect to meet with these people. Instead, encourage them. See, the word encourage is a very interesting word in the New Testament. It means to come alongside. It means to build up. It means to cheer. It means to urge. It, it means to implore. So people come in and say, let me, let me encourage you. Man, you look good today. That's not biblical encouragement. That's really a lie in most cases with us, you know. Or, or, hey, man, it wouldn't change a thing about you. Really? Well, I changed a lot of things about me. See, encouragement, encouragement is to come alongside and to cheer up, to urge, to implore, to build, to care. Encouraging one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, Hebrews 3 says, so no one's will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 10 says, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see, the day drawing near. There's a day coming, and we're going to be dead. Or there's a day coming, Jesus is coming again. History is going somewhere. And it's not about bigger barns. It's about honoring the Lord and enjoying the presence of His fullness and His fellowship. And so, you need to be in a community group, a small group where people can care for you. I'm, here are some of the values of our community group. Affirmation. Number two, availability. People that are there, they, they know you. They care for you. Number three, the authority of the Bible. We hold to our confession. Openness and honesty. The thing about, the th- really, the the thing about getting old, I met with a guy this week, a man I really love. He's another pastor. He's six years older than me. And he said, you know the most discouraging thing? He said, by this age, 66, I thought I'd be more godly and have it more together. He says, I really don't. And I said, I don't either. I said, I thought I'd be better looking. I'm, still, I'm not getting any better looking. In fact, it's kind of going downhill, you know. See, listen, no one has it all together. No one is omnicompetent. No one has the perfect marriage. No one is the perfect parent. No one. And so when you get to that point of, of, of understanding, you get together with people and you just pray for each other and love each other, and, and you, you say, but man, let's press on. Another standard is safety and confidentiality. Another is prayer support and then kingdom advancement. How, how do we extend the kingdom? How can we go forward? How can we pray for our people and our circles of influence that are coming to know Christ? How can we support people to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? What do we do in our community? You know that type of thing? See, I need a community group. I need to be in community. I need men and women in my life who, who live this way. Listen, if you don't have it, if you don't have it, you're missing out on a key ingredient 
of growth in Christ. I love the people of God. I, I, I do. And so next Sunday night, we're going to, those of you who are in the community group, we're going to have a supper here. You're going to meet some leaders. You're going to hear about community group and have a chance to see where they are as far as their logistics and sign up and find a group where you can be loved and encouraged and cared for. And something we really want to do too is I, I, was, uh, I was down in the gym at the early, early service hour walking around talking to people. There were, there were five or six babies in the gym at the first hour that were all born within the last six hours. Beautiful, tiny babies. Beautiful children. We love children. And so we said we're going to have Wednesday night community groups here at the church with a full nursery for young children so that moms and dads can get a break and they can meet in community and with other people and pray and, and, and quite honestly survive. You know, I've always said mothers of preschool children get, get, a, get a star every week just because they survived. God bless you. We want to support you. Let's be the body of Christ. You know, it's, it's like the elders, and we've been talking about this for months, that we, we want to be better shepherds to our body. Working with our deacons and our community, we want to shepherd better. Because we're going to be held accountable. I'm going to preach on that in a few weeks. We're going to be held accountable for how we treat people, how we shepherd people, how we love people. So this is a huge task. It's very important. It's very important. So get in a community group. Get in a small group. Jump in. All right, let's pray. So, Lord, uh, uh, we are we're, we're meeting together on the Lord's Day, and you tell us to do that, and you tell us to not neglect that, and you tell us that we, as we're together, we should ponder how to stir up one another to love and good works, and that we should encourage each other all the more as we see the day drawing near, the day of judgment, the day of our death, the day of ultimate realities. Thank you that we live in a glorious, wonderful meta-narrative called the gospel of grace. Thank you that we're not trying to nail jello to the wall and say this is true or this is not true, that there is a glorious truth called the gospel to which the prophets and the apostles all pointed, to which the sacrificial system the temple system, the priestly system, all pointed the ultimate reality of the Christ. And we are so thankful. Oh, we're so thankful. And we thank you that, uh, that, that, that we have a confession to which we should be holding. So God, give us grace to be your people and to walk in love and to ten walk in tenderness. Uh, don't, don't let us become dull of hearing or sluggish, but let us press hard after you. Give us Proverbs to men and women in our lives who search for the wisdom of Christ as for silver or hidden treasure, who cry out for knowledge. God, we want to be that type of person. We really do. So give us grace. Give us grace. Give us the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name.